0: Our Bible reading today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2 verses 1 to 15. One Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 15. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, Not with elaborate hairstyles, or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety.
1: Thanks Hannah, thanks Jacob. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you before, uh, my name's Reuben. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad you're with us. Uh, you've joined us in the middle of a sermon series called One Body, Everybody. This is week four. Uh, we started looking at how the whole church is together, the body of Christ. Uh, then we looked at spiritual gifts. Uh, then we looked at the importance of love, which binds all of these things, makes them work together. We come today uh, to roles, uh, all of us having different roles, and particularly uh, the different roles of men and women in the church. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless and true. And more than that, we thank you that it is good. Good for us. Good for your church. Good for the glory of your name, the spread of the gospel. Lord, we pray that this morning... You would use your word again, powerfully through your Holy Spirit, to build up this church, to make us stronger together for the glory of your name. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe over the years you've heard some of the same comments about men and women that I have. Some of these comments make my blood boil, quite frankly, like when a man hints... At the idea that a woman is weak, inferior, that they should quietly have their babies over there while the men get on with the important stuff. Or maybe, like me, you've heard comments of a very different kind, comments that actually do make me quite sad, like when a woman suggests that men in history have pretty much tried and failed and uh, it's time for them to step aside, it's time for women to run the world, And any man really should be treated with suspicion just by virtue of the fact that he is a man. Sometimes it almost feels like a war, don't you think? Like there's these these two opposing sides, they're facing off against each other, and they both seem to want to sideline half of the population, and you can't help but wonder how humanity could ever flourish if we do that. Maybe it's not surprising then that our society is becoming increasingly jaded about gender. We're almost ready to throw it away altogether to erase the distinction between men and women and say, well, each person just figure it out for themselves as it is most convenient. Personally, I dream of of another way. A way in which we admit that men need women and women need men. A way in which we would be stronger together, a way in which we would value each other and fight alongside each other instead of fight against each other. And I, I believe our society is searching for this too. Searching for a way where we can explain what, what deep inside we know is true, that, that a man and a woman are not identical, that they're not interchangeable, but they are equally important and needed. We're looking for love, we're looking for unity, we're looking to be stronger together together. But what does that look like in practice? How can that beautiful dream ever become a reality? That brings us to our passage today. Now, that might seem quite jarring for me to talk about that beautiful dream and then segue into the passage we just read, right? Because let's be honest, 1 Timothy 2 has some pretty countercultural verses in it. But before we write them off as dated, as dangerous, Just pause with me and consider, does countercultural necessarily mean wrong? I mean, didn't we just admit that our society doesn't exactly have it all together on this stuff? This morning, we have the chance to hear things from God's perspective. We get to hear the master architect sit down and explain to us the way he designed things and why. And I hope that we're going to see that his design is really, really good. I honestly believe that God's design for gender roles in the church is good news. It's good for men. It's good for women. It's good for the gospel. Why do I say that? Let's, let's jump in. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible open to 1 Timothy 2, please do it. Because these are the words of God. We're going to see three things in this passage. The first is this. We share the same goal. We share the same goal. Before the Apostle Paul is going to divide up roles, he wants everyone to be united around the same goal. Uh, It's kind of like the construction manager who makes sure that everyone knows the overall plan for the building before the sparkies and the builders and the plumbers go off to do their different tasks. Paul wants the church to be united around the main thing. What is it? What is the goal that the Ephesian church, that Riverbank Christian church should be united in working towards? Well, it began back in chapter 1 when Paul told us the church really needs to be all about protecting and proclaiming the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? Have a look there in verses 4 to 6 of our passage. Verse 4, God wants all people to be saved. Verses 5 and 6, so God has sent a mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. He died for our sins so that we could be brought back into loving relationship with God. That's the gospel. It's the good news. And it is our job as the church to deliver that good news to the world. Together, we are the billboard, the advertisement for the gospel. And Paul says, if that is your mission, if that is your goal then that should shape everything you do. His his particular focus in chapter 2 is going to be giving instructions of what it would look like when the whole church gathers together, exactly like we're doing here for a Sunday service today. What should happen when we come together? How can our gatherings make the gospel attractive? Well, as we read these verses, I think we start to glimpse the beautiful gathering That Paul has in his mind. It's a gathering, verse 1, where we pray for all people, especially the government, because we're eager to see the gospel flourish. It's a gathering where we pray, it's a gathering where we worship, and we learn together. It's a gathering, kind of as we saw in the kids talk already, where we aren't focused on ourselves, but on loving God and loving others. And, And yet, we don't always do a good job of that, do we? Paul knows that in verses 8 to 10, he gives us two examples of how this can go wrong. Have a look there, verse 8. Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Uh, Jews would often raise their hands when they prayed. But Paul's not mostly concerned about the posture. He's concerned about the attitude. Holy And he singles out men here because he knows that we are particularly prone to be short-tempered and argumentative. And the church is not to be a place of conflict, it's a place where we unite around the gospel. So men, don't come to church dragging your feet and whinging about this and that. Come eagerly to worship God with your whole heart. And then in verses 9 to 10, Paul points out another way the church could be distracted from the gospel. All of us, but women in particular, Paul says, need to be careful that church doesn't become a place for comparing and showing off about outward things like clothes or wealth or beauty. And I wonder what is on your mind when you come to church? Is it how you look and whether you fit in? Or are you focused on... How you can do good deeds and use your gifts to bless others. Paul's not saying women can't do their hair and look nice. He's warning against extravagance that distracts from the things that really make the church beautiful. A beautiful church is a place where people love Jesus and they love each other. Okay, so that is just a whirlwind summary, isn't it, of verses 1 to 10. But do you see why it would be a mistake for us to have jumped straight into verses 11 and 12, start talking about the different roles of men and women immediately? Because if we did that, we would skip over the main thing. The thing that we all have in common. Man or woman, it doesn't matter. We're all created by God, loved by God, saved by God, and sent out on the same mission for God. Jesus gave the Great Commission to all of us. Together, go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. Please don't miss this. Men and women, we are all on the same team. We're all going towards the same goal. We are not to be a church where the men do the gospel ministry and the women are sidelined. No, we are a church where we gather together. And together we pray and strive for the advance of the gospel to the glory of God's name. Okay, with that in mind, we come to verses 11 and 12. Point one, we all share the same goal. But now, point two, we have different roles. We have different roles. Let's read from verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man she must be quiet. Okay, let's work through these verses. Let's just go through them and unpack what Paul's saying. First, a woman should learn. Or, probably better translated, let a woman learn. Now, we might think this passage is confronting because of what Paul's going to say soon. But for a lot of Jews in his time, this was where the shock came let women learn. When the teaching starts, don't send them out to the kitchen and the creche, let them learn. Why? Because that is how disciples of Jesus grow in their faith, isn't it? And women, you are just as much disciples of Jesus as men. Perhaps this calls for a quick word of application to the women of Riverbank. If it has ever been communicated to you, even implicitly, that theology, thinking, studying is best left to the men, Please erase those thoughts from your mind. Please, women, study the Bible. Go deep on your own, in your growth groups. Go to Bible college. Go deep. Don't just coast on the faith of your church leaders or or your husband. Our church needs godly, switched-on women of the Word. Okay, Paul goes on. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. This is where it gets fun, hey? Or not. Quietness is repeated again at the end of verse 12. It does not mean, that word does not mean complete silence, no talking, ever. What Paul is saying is that when the church gathers together for teaching, women aren't to be the ones doing that teaching. They're listening, they're learning. What about that phrase, full submission? Well, actually, submission is a pretty common theme in Scripture, isn't it? Submission is a normal thing for Christians. Kids submit to their parents, wives to their husbands, all Christians to church leaders and to the governing authorities of the nation and and ultimately to Jesus Christ. And and if you don't like that, well, Jesus Christ submits to His Father. So, submission is not a dirty word in Scripture. Uh, I think... Australian theologian Claire Smith gives a great definition of submission. She says, submission is a voluntary and willing acceptance of the leadership and responsibility of another. Read that again. Submission is a voluntary and willing submission, acceptance, sorry, of the leadership and responsibility of another. But what exactly is Paul saying in this passage? Is he saying all women should submit to all men all the time? Well, the next verse makes it very clear that's not what Paul is saying. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. There's two things here, to teach and to have authority. But these two things, they go hand in hand. They fit together. See, Paul is not talking about all teaching, any teaching that happens in the church. And he's certainly not talking about teaching outside of the church, like like at school or uni or Bible college. He's talking about authoritative teaching that happens in the church, teaching that sets the doctrine and the direction of the church. It's a specific type of teaching. When does that authoritative teaching happen? Well, it, it primarily happens when the whole church gathers And God's word is preached. So, when Paul talks about a woman being quiet and submissive, he has a specific context in mind. He's talking specifically about the public gathering of the church, particularly when the teaching is happening. That's when women learn quietly rather than teaching. That's when women submit rather than having that position of authority. Who should do this teaching? Is Paul's role, well, look, as long as you're a man, go for it. Well, no. Have a, have a look straight after chapter 2. In the very next verses, in chapter 3, Paul explains that this role is only for some men. Men who meet a strict criteria of godly character and ability to teach and manage well. We call these men elders. Here at Riverbank, we're led by a team of elders who form the church council. And and a few chapters later, in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul also explains that some elders will specialize in the work of preaching. And at Riverbank, we call those men pastors. Okay. So where does that leave us? What's Paul saying here? There is a particular role in the church that consists of authoritative teaching and leading of the whole congregation. That's the role that's only for men. And it's not for all men, it's only for those godly men who God has gifted to teach and lead His church. And God calls everyone else in the whole congregation to submit to those leaders, especially at that point when they are authoritatively teaching the whole church. So now we can be really clear on what Paul is not saying. Okay? He is not saying women should submit to all men in the church. It's only the elders and pastors and, and perhaps the woman's own husband if she has one. Paul is also not saying a woman can never have a public role in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, it says women can pray and prophesy in the public gathering. We want to see women on the stage. We're working on that. We want to see them contributing to our services and using their gifts to build up the church. Paul's also not saying women can never teach. He's not saying women can never teach. Titus 2, it calls older women to teach younger women. 2 Timothy shows that Timothy really became a Christian through the teaching of his mother and his grandmother. Acts 18 talks about this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, And they invite a young believer into their home and they teach him God's word. And Colossians 3 calls all of us, including women, to teach one another. That one anothering when we're gathered together through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So, what do we learn through verses 11 and 12? We learn that although we all share one goal, we have different roles to play. And in particular, there is one role in the church that God has reserved for men. Now, isn't it fair to say that in modern Australia, that idea grates against us? Uh, How can we be equal if we aren't all allowed to do the exact same thing? And because that feels so unfair, many Christians have tried to reinterpret these verses by saying that these... Instructions are not for all Christians, in all places, for all time. No, Paul's specifically talking to the church in Ephesus about a specific cultural problem that they had. And only in that context, for those Ephesian women, did Paul say, you shouldn't have an authoritative teaching role. Well, is that right? Is that view right? Let's look at the next verse and find out. Have a look there, verse 13. For, okay, now he's backing up his argument, supporting it. For, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Is Paul grounding these different roles for men and women in, in the cultural moment of Ephesus? No, he's, he's talking about the goodness of creation. He's going right back to the beginning. That brings us to our third point. We've seen that we all share the same goal. We've seen that we have different roles. Now, in verses 13 to 15, we simply want to see this is a good thing. This is actually a good thing. Paul wants us to see that gender roles are actually part of God's good design. It's how he created the world to work. He's taking us back to Genesis 1, where God made humans in his image, didn't he? Men and women together, equal in dignity and worth, united together in their calling to glorify God, to care for the world. Genesis 1, we see man and woman together, equality, unity. But then in Genesis 2, we see that men and women are also different. Equal, but different. They're not identical. They're not interchangeable. Uh, you might remember God made man first. He gave him a job to do. Can you picture him there? The perfect man standing in paradise all on his own. You know what God says? Oh dear, <laughs> this is not going to end well. <laughs> this guy needs someone to help him. This guy needs help. And then he makes a helper suitable for him. So we shouldn't think that this language of helper is demeaning to women. I think of anything it puts men... In their place, right? We're the ones needing help. Actually, that word helper gets used through the Old Testament for God, our great helper. Now, why is Paul taking us back to Adam and Eve? Because he wants us to see that this principle of male headship, of men leading in the home and leading in the church, is part of God's good design. Men, God has called you to lead like Christ with sacrificial love, like a servant, ensuring that those under your care are nurtured, protected, and enabled to flourish. And when husbands lead their families like that, when elders lead the church like that, it's a good thing. It's good for everyone. So, Track with me. Verse 13, Paul goes, All right, I'm supporting my argument here by going to creation. Then in verse 14, where does he go next? He goes on to talk about the fall into sin. His point is that in Eden, Satan turned God's good design upside down, the authority structure got flipped. Adam, the leader, failed to lead. Eve, the helper, stormed on ahead. They both sinned, but in different ways. And do you know what this means? It means that the problem in our world is not the idea that men and women are different and might have different roles. No, that's actually part of the good design. The problem is sin. Here's the good news. Paul wants us to know that that is not the end of the story. Hallelujah. The story of our world is not just God made something awesome and we ruined it. We wouldn't be here this morning if that was all there was to it. There is part three to the story. Jesus has come to heal and restore. And that includes redeeming and restoring the roles of men and women as God planned. I actually think that is the big point that Paul's trying to make in verse 15, which is surely one of the most intriguing and odd verses in the Bible. What does he mean? Verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, it can't mean God's going to save women if they have children. (laughs) I mean, we know the gospel is salvation in Christ through faith alone. So it's not that. Some have suggested maybe it's talking about Eve. He was just talking about Eve. And saying how Jesus, the saviour of the world, came from Eve's line. That's plausible, I think. But I don't don't think it's the best explanation. I think we can do better. Remember the main flow in Paul's argument. He's saying, yes, yes, sin has come into the world. and, And it has messed up God's good plan for men and women. And yes, there's now tension in our relationships. It can be hard. Yes, yes, yes. But don't despair. Why? Because God is saving us. And as part of that, he is helping us begin to live again the way he designed us to live. Including the ability to now embrace our God-given roles as men and women. And, and I think what's happening in verse 15 is that Paul is picking, he's illustrating his point by picking the most obvious, undeniable difference in the responsibilities of men and women. Childbearing. Really hard to get past that and blur the lines on that one, right? He's saying, Christian man, Christian woman, God is calling you to faithfully step into the roles he has given you. Now, Claire Smith helpfully points out this doesn't mean that all Christian women have to have children. We know that some cannot, for various reasons, but rather, Claire Smith says, that women are to be content with the roles and responsibilities that God has ordained for them. Men and women of Riverbank, if we embrace the responsibilities that God has given to each of us and carry them out with faith and love and holiness, our church is going to look very different. To the world around us. Very different, and I think very attractive. Do you remember at the start? I spoke about how people in our society are searching for a way forward on these issues. A way for men and women to get along, to actually be stronger together. How can that dream ever become a reality? How could the wounds of our gendered history ever be healed? Only through Jesus Christ. Only salvation in Christ can expose our sin and cause us all to admit, hey, we're all part of the problem. It's our salvation in Christ that rebuilds our identity, no longer around our gender or our roles, but around being children of God. It's our salvation in Christ that unites us together as one, equal in the eyes of God. It's our salvation in Christ that leads us to God's word where we discover the beauty of God's design for men and women. It's our salvation in Christ that empowers men to step up as loving, servant-hearted leaders in the church and the home. And it's our salvation in Christ that empowers women to joyfully follow this leadership and use all their unique gifts and abilities to further the cause of the gospel. We're nearly done. It's a long sermon. i warn you of that. I could not deal with this text quicker than this. (laughs) What we've just described is what theologians call complementarianism. Complementarianism. That is, men and women are designed to complement each other. Not complement. Oh, you look nice. Complement. Two different parts needed to complete the whole. And that is the theological position that we hold here at Riverbank. But let me offer a caution here. I have to say this. That does not mean that Riverbank is actually truly a complementarian church. Not necessarily. Because there are versions of complementarianism that are shriveled and deficient. Some of us know what the Bible says on this. But we feel a bit embarrassed about it. We're scared when our pastor gets up to talk about it. Friends, we don't need to be apologetic about God's good design. I truly believe it is the very thing that our society doesn't know that it's looking for. Another mistake complementarians make is that we focus mainly on what women can't do. And I think Christian writer Jen Wilkins is right on the money when she says this God help complementarians if we spend our energies fastidiously chalking the boundaries of a race course, we never urge or equip our women to run. I long to see Riverbank become a church that really embraces and celebrates the biblical roles of men and women as God's good design. Yes, we need to mark out the boundaries clearly, we need to mark out the edges of the water that are dangerous where there are rocks, but we don't want to spend our whole day trip to the lake just walking around the edge, talking about where we can't swim, right? Now let's jump in the water and have a great time. You say, well, uh, did you see verse 12? It's pretty restrictive, pulls it, I do not permit. Yes, there is something here that God does not permit a woman to do. But maybe that's not such a negative thing. Maybe it's actually helpful because clarity creates confidence. If we don't have clarity, if we aren't clear on exactly what women can and can't do in the church, what happens? Some of you know what this is like. You fear that you could cross a boundary. You might do something and then find out that you crossed a line. And so we hang back and get less involved than we could. And you know what? Our whole church suffers as a result. That is why clarity is so important. Clarity creates confidence. That's why church council, along with Erica Pugh, our women's ministry worker, we've been working hard over the past six months reading and researching to clarify exactly what scripture does and doesn't permit a woman to do. Not to put women in their place, but to help mobilize them. This is what we're trying to do, to remove fear, to encourage you women that you are needed and you are gifted and you are absolutely vital to Riverbank. We're working on a paper at the moment. It'll come out hopefully the next few months with guidelines, clear guidelines. Should should a woman lead a Sunday service? Should a woman uh, lead a growth group, mixed men and women? We want to be as clear as possible on these these tricky questions. Why? Because in years to come, we want to see more and more women at Riverbank using their gifts to do gospel ministry, to advance the kingdom of God. Women, we need you. There's, there's so much to be done, and there's so much that is available to you to do. And we don't want you sitting on the bench and thinking, oh, there's not much for you. Thinking that this is really a guy's church. Guys do the big stuff, the important stuff. The only real ministry that even happens here is preaching and eldership. Absolutely not. The dominant emphasis in the New Testament, the whole point of the sermon series is to highlight the fact that every member of the church is gifted and needed in order for the gospel to go out. Okay, let me say a quick word to men, and then we'll finish. There is a role here that God has reserved for men. Godly men who will teach and lead the church in a Christ-like way. Our churches desperately need more elders and more pastors. And it's got to be men who take responsibility for that. In the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, it will begin with these words, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Men... Are you aspiring to this task? Young men, is this on your radar for the future? I'm convinced convinced that if men stepped up and did a good job of what God called them to do, and I'm speaking to myself here, in the church and at home, I think there would be far less women frustrated by complementarian theology. Riverbank, when we follow... God's good design for gender roles in our church. We will all be stronger for it and the cause of the gospel will flourish. Let's pray together. Lord God, it's passages like this which remind us that you are God and we are not. And I confess, Lord, I certainly would not design the world like this. But Lord, we have seen in so many ways for thousands of years in your word and most particularly in Jesus Christ, that you are a good God, a wise God, a loving God, a God who knows what is best for us, who wants what is best for us, And Lord, we thank you that you've given us these clear instructions. We pray that we will be able to obey what you've commanded. More and more that we will be able to do that, not reluctantly, not apologetically, but joyfully. But Lord, we also pray that our complementarian theology here at Riverbank would not become little more than a few rules of what a woman cannot do. Lord, we pray for a far bigger change, a far bigger vision, where we see how we could be stronger together, how you've made men and women different, how they complement each other, how we need each other. Only together, Lord, we know, will this church flourish? Will this church be a place where the gospel is lived out, where there are loving relationships and passionate outreach, where everyone is being discipled and growing to love and learn about Jesus Christ? So we pray, Lord, do that work. Give wisdom to church council as they think these things through. And we pray that in the years to come, we might more and more see every single person at Riverbank built up, playing their different roles and parts, using their different gifts to the upbuilding of this church and to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.